2: And thanks for listening. Carbon in our atmosphere. Is it friend or foe? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Carbon emissions have been demonized, and arguably so, for their contribution to global warming. But Noah Deitch of Carbon 180 says carbon gets a bad rap.
3: It's not inherently bad. It's just bad when it's in the atmosphere in too great of a quantity. But if we can figure out through innovation how to turn that waste back into a valuable product, we can take that liability and turn it back into an asset.
2: Today on Climate One, we'll hear about some of the ways that carbon can be captured and sequestered in rocks, soil, trees, even building materials. New technologies are leading the way, but that's not the whole story. Working with natural systems is not part of the conversation often
0: enough, and nature is far more powerful than we will ever be. You know, nature wants to be in balance, right? But we just need to create the conditions for that to happen,
2: and we can Reaching carbon-negative status might sound as impossible as unboiling an egg, but our three guests today say it can be done. Diana Donnellan is the director of Soil Centric, an organization that works toward regenerative agriculture. Mike Biddle is managing director of EVOC Innovations, a clean tech fund. And Noah Deitch is executive director of Carbon 180, a nonprofit that champions carbon removal through science and innovation. Here's their conversation about going carbon-negative.
1: Noah Deitch, let's begin with you. Uh, The Supreme Court of the United States has said that carbon is a pollutant that should be regulated. Um, How do you think it should be a friend rather than a foe in the climate story?
3: Well, that's a great question, and it's great to be here. I think uh, the important thing about carbon is it's not inherently bad. It's just bad when it's in the atmosphere in too great of a quantity. So when I think about carbon removal, I actually see... The opportunity to take carbon that's in the atmosphere, where it's a waste, it is a pollutant when it's there in excess. But if we can figure out through innovation how to turn that waste back into a valuable product, we can take that liability and turn it back into an asset. And that's how we start all of our conversations on carbon removal, is in that frame of innovation and economic opportunity to take a problem and turn it into an opportunity.
1: So for hundreds of years, we've been basically taking it out of the ground, putting it up in the air, and we'll get to the back in the ground piece. So what are some ways that that we can put it into something useful, into products, that sort of thing, Noah Dyche?
3: So we can do a lot of things with it. On the technology side, many of the products that we consume today are carbon-based. We get them from the ground. But we can think about transforming how we make many of the, the products and materials in our built environment so that they come from the air instead. So this building, cement, the timber products in the building, all of that can sequester carbon. The fuels that we consume can come from the atmosphere. Even the clothes we wear and the food we eat can all be associated with carbon sequestration. So this is really an economy-wide opportunity to think about turning carbon back into a value.
1: Okay, yes, yeah, the, the, the uh, element that likes to hold hands um, uh, in nature. Diana donlin uh, there's a book written, The Soil Can Save Us. Uh, it's something you know, that's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of people can relate to. So how, what, how does the soil come into this in terms of putting carbon, restoring the carbon balance?
0: Sure, well, if um, you took the words out of my mouth, I was going to say what we need to do is restore the carbon balance because carbon, as Noah said, is always cycling through the system, and it's actually the Earth's currency, And um, in the atmosphere, we have it in excess and it's problematic, but we actually at the same time um, have a deficit in the soil. And so um, many of our soils are hungry for carbon. And uh, Ratan Lal, who's the preeminent soil scientist on on this planet, was actually at the FAO yesterday, which happened to be World Soil Day. And he was talking about the opportunity to um, put the carbon back in the soil, not only in the carbon sink that is the soil, but also in the vegetation. Um, And we can get to those numbers uh, later in the program about what what the opportunity is. Um, But to Noah's point, too, about timber and clothing and food, all that has its genesis in the soil. If you think of a tree, a tree, you know, think of a pine cone. That falls into the ground, and that turns into a giant tree That it, that's just from air. That's just all from photosynthesis. So we have um, a, a tremendous opportunity to work with these natural systems.
1: Yeah, some of the, the biggest optimists I meet in the climate conversations are the soil people who say we <coughs> can put it back, uh, restore that balance. Uh, Mike Biddle, why are Canadian oil companies dabbling in this area?
4: I think for a variety of reasons. I think many of the oil companies uh, around the world are starting to understand that they have to be part of the solution space and not just uh, the denial space. Um, I have my own opinions about uh, Canada being a little bit more forward-thinking than our own country, so I think that plays a role. Uh, there is policy in Canada, too, that, uh, let's say, pushes them in that, in that direction. There is a carbon tax uh, in Canada that's, that's been implemented. And I think that they're just looking for the future. Um, they, they see uh, the future of clean energy being different than it is today, and they want to be prepared uh, for what that future is. They want to be a viable enterprise in the future. I did the same with plastics. I worked with the plastics industry to solve a plastics recycling problem and the plastic in the oceans problem. And I think it's my belief that the in- industries that are part of the problem, if you, if you will, need to be part of the solution as well. So I'm quite happy that that they're funding us to, to find solutions.
1: So the, the ocean plastics problem hasn't really been solved yet. It, hasn't. Right? No. <laughs> it has, um, not been you know, solved. catch that one. But but you're saying an industry kind of comes in and perhaps in some relatively let's be honest, too, with some relatively small amounts of their capital outlays. Right. In terms of the capital expenditure, the billions that these oil companies will will invest. These are some pennies that they're kind of putting as, as
4: hedges or sort of a way to kind of learn and so they're not surprised. I'd say it's a percentage of their revenues. It's, it, it, I think you could call it a small percentage. But it, in an absolute sense, uh, we're one of the major investors in this space. In fact, we're one of the few investors in the world investing in uh, negative carbon companies, uh, early stage, risky Uh, companies two of them right here incubated in the bay area that are trying to take carbon out of uh, waste streams like flue gas take carbon out of the air and that's in one case and another company trying to take that carbon and as noah alluded to turn it into new materials Uh, there's not very many companies or investment uh, groups on the planet willing to make those risky early stage uh, bets
1: anyone making money yet on carbon removal or using (laughs) carbon as a uh, Noah
3: yeah, I, so I, I know a handful
4: are. Okay, it, I'd like to hear those.
3: <laughs> I, I, think, where I can, think they will, but... Uh. I think they will, too, and we're, where we're seeing the first opportunities are in building materials. So figuring out how to turn CO2 back into cement, for example, you can make a... Stronger, better products in many cases than what exists in the market today, so those companies are are closer
4: I think carbon cure, for example, is probably sure. the closest i 'm not sure if they 're making money yet, but they, I think they 're on a pathway to make money, so I think there are some, a few examples out there
0: and some regenerative farmers are making money, so um, farmers that are using um, methods that improve their soil health if, if they 're starting with that and looking not at their yields, but looking at the health of their soil, they are actually, um, there are are five principles that you can, that are universal, which underpin soil health. And uh, farmers that really study those principles and apply them, um, like Gabe Brown, who's sort of the poster child for this in North Dakota, um, they increase their soil ca- carbon, thereby increasing their fertility and their yields. Um, so, And they will show you their books and say, hey, look, you know, and that's their starting point. They say, we're making money, guys. So come on over to our side.
3: And I think that the, no the transformation is what matters right now, not making money. We're sitting here in the Bay Area where we have tech startups who 10 years in are still not making money, and we deem them a wild success. We need to do the same thing when it comes to transforming all of these industries, not just our agriculture and food industries, but also our our oil, our manufacturing industry, and the energy sector writ large. And so I think that's the right metric to think about how are we deploying capital and bringing these innovations to scale, not necessarily will they make money right now.
1: Noah you told me about Occidental Petroleum, who, which has a woman CEO, pretty unusual, and they're talking about themselves in a, in a different way. How, tell us how Occidental is talking about their future in a different way.
3: Well, so I think what we're seeing from a, a number of players in industry writ large <clears throat> is the realization that we can't continue business as usual for forever. And not only that, but the opportunity for transforming a business from one that's reliant on emission-intensive activities into emission capturing and eventually sequestering activities can actually be really profitable. And Occidental Petroleum is different from some of these other oil companies in that they actually take CO2 and use it today at very large volumes. They're making oil with that co2 so if you're thinking about it from a climate perspective it's a bit of a mixed bag
1: so they're, they're pumping co2 into oil wells to to enhance recovery to get more to oil, get more
3: oil out. okay exactly and so this is a, a very old practice at the end of the day but it's one that's increasingly important when we think about the need to pump co2 underground in large scale in the future for negative emissions and i think what we're seeing is that at the end of the day The amount of carbon that needs to go from the atmosphere back underground is similar to the amount of oil and gas and fossil fuels that we extract from the ground today and put up in the air. This is a huge industry, trillions of dollars. Billions of dollars of early investment is great, but it's nowhere near the capital that's going to be needed for this transformation. And I think that's what we're starting to see companies see today is they're making money at a small scale now and they see that the future if they invest in it today at a real scale could be something that's incredibly large and prosperous for them and their shareholders
1: so you see a role a constructive role for the major oil companies in this transition rather than trying to stag a dagger in their heart and put them out of business
3: so the jury's still out we have to see how this plays out over time the Initial signs are encouraging. And I think we're at the stage where everyone needs to be part of the solution. And I, I think what we're seeing right now is real commitments from companies both in deploying their capital, but also talking about their strategy to their shareholders about how in the future they will make this transition happen. And we're, we're really at the first leg of this marathon, but I, I'm encouraged that we're, we're taking the right initial steps today.
1: Diana Donlan, I've heard that if, uh, if cows were a country, they'd be the third largest global emitter. Tell us how cows can be part of the solution and, you know, grasslands in particular.
0: Sure. So um, in the United States, we've lost 97 percent of what was our grassland prairie. And uh, some historians would tell you that one of the reasons the United States is such a rich country is that we won the soil lottery, as it were, um, in, on this planet. And that when the glaciers came down, the deposits of soil that then grew up with the bison's a synergy between the ruminant herds and these very deep-rooted perennial grasses created this soil bank that we've been drawing from. And so we only have 3% of that native prairie left. So if you think about... Um, the Serengeti, you think about, you know, the the Midwest, and you think about different places in the world where there has been animal impact. We had herds of uh, zebra and, you know, all sorts of ruminants. So grazing animals are not inherently bad. It is the way we humans manage these animals. And right now, Um, The way we have chosen as people to raise cattle is mostly in confinement. Now that has a lot of problems because the manure goes into lagoons and that creates methane and so on and so forth. The cattle, which should be Grazing on grass are fed corn and soy, which is uh, fossil fuel intensive to raise and which is not part of their diet, which makes them sick, and so then they have to be given antibiotics. And so, when people talk about cows being bad for the planet, they are talking about the confined animal feeding operations. When animals are grazed in a way that mimics natural herds moving through that's actually beneficial so we have to draw that distinction about the way the animals are managed and um, some people see because we've lost these ruminant herds mostly in the world um, a great potential to mimic that what was nature going through with you know wildebeest or what have you and use cows as a proxy um, or sheep or goats
1: so free-range cows are, are are okay, even though there's still methane coming out both ends of that cow. Um.
0: Well, no, they have to be. They have to be moved through a pasture in a very intentional way. So if you just put cows out on an acre and leave them there and come back a month later, that's not okay because the cows are going to go through and they're going to pick what they want and they might overgraze something and undergraze something else. Um, What I'm talking about is a specific practice that has many different names and I won't even get into them um, but holistic planned grazing is more or less the catch-all name for it um, where the rancher would move the cattle through um, a particular piece of land and then not come back to that land, allow it to rest and recover, Um, but that land has had some animal impact. The the cows have reduced the uh, fuel load by grazing it, and they've also stimulated the microbial community, um, and they've also fertilized it with their their manure um, and not come back for two or three months, maybe even six or eight months, whatever the timing is for that grassland to recover. That kind of grazing is actually climate-beneficial.
1: Sounds expensive and and takes more time and effort for for ranchers to do that. Does that scale ranchers? A lot of them doing uh, practices like they've been taught through the generations. You know, it's one thing to do that in a little boutique in West Marin. But does it scale?
0: Um, There are hubs around the world where it's being tried. And uh, as long as, you know, certain principles are applied, it seems to be working. Um, I don't know enough about ranching myself to say that the size of the herd, but often um, the larger the herd, from what I've heard, is the, um, the actually the easier it is for the ranchers once they adopt this method.
1: Uh, Noah Deitch, tell us, you know, there's different types of carbon capture. Tell us, you know, direct air capture versus smokestacks versus other types of things give us give us a lay of kind of the the, the portfolio if you will
3: sure so carbon capture is a broad umbrella term it usually refers to technologies and these technologies essentially act as filters for either a smokestack whether that's on a power plant or an industrial facility like a cement plant or a steel refinery we can also put carbon capture just directly in open air this is called direct air capture What's interesting about this wide range of carbon capture technologies is that it's applicable both for stopping additional carbon getting added into the atmosphere, but it can also be turned to take carbon that's already in the air and getting it out. Once you capture carbon, there's a wide range of things that you can do with it, whether it comes from a smokestack or the air or any other source. You can, again, turn it into an interesting product or... You can bury it deep underground. Many people also talk about some of the natural solutions within this carbon capture umbrella, natural carbon capture being trees and plants that capture carbon through photosynthesis and lock it away in forests or ecosystems or soils. But I think when we hear carbon capture and storage, it usually is referring to the the technology options on the table.
1: And then the carbon math, you know, uh, the latest, some of the latest reports came out, come out, it's like, well, there's like 12 years or so before we gonna go through the carbon budget to have a chance of avoiding, the, you know, some of uh, more than two degrees of warming, that sort of thing. So to get there, is carbon capture, you know, going negative, going to be necessary? And are these technologies ready in time to, uh, to when they're really going to be needed, break the glass, they're needed.
3: Sure. So there's a lot of issues with that framing in my mind too, because there's not a point at which climate change either happens or it doesn't. We're already seeing it today, and so what we need is every solution that we can put on the table as quickly as possible, because every even tenth of a degree matters at the end of the day. And so that's why it's so important to figure out how we get carbon capture in all of its forms, both the natural, the technological, and within the technology umbrella, industry, power, and through the direct air capture routes, that we need everything that we can have.
1: Diana Donlan, um, are some big food companies getting involved in this? It's one thing to have you know, some ranchers here and there, but what about the sort of the industrial food giants? Are they getting involved in paying attention to soils and, and this...
0: They are. Um, They're concerned about their supply chain because when you have, you know, hurricanes and when you have these extreme weather events, you have this oscillation between flooding and drought um, that disrupts supply chains. So one of the the big um, players, General Mills, which is an enormous conglomerate, um, recently bought 63,000 acres of land that they are farming organically. And they have um, extension agents actually helping the farmers use best practices in terms of soil health, so like cover cropping and, and keeping a living root in the soil and so forth. And then they are able to sell that, um, the wheat that they grow on this, um, I think it's, it's in Montana, it's either Montana or Minnesota, where they, they bought the 63,000 acres and sell that at a premium. An, another company that I can think of that's not a large company, but it's an important one in my book, it's a chocolate company, and it's Alter Eco, They are working with carbon insetting. So typically, cocoa is grown in monoculture, where you're just having the cocoa trees and nothing else. They're using agroforestry, which is a very um, promising natural solution to climate um, change. And it's multi-story, and then they're actually putting more carbon back into the system than they're taking out. So we get chocolate, and we get extra carbon.
3: Yeah, but and I think like the, that. the interesting thing that we're seeing for a lot of these food and ag companies interested in these carbon sequestering solutions is they're not looking for the carbon to drive the business case. In many cases, they're interested in the resilience of their supply chain or some other ecosystem benefit, whether that's water or the amount of fertilizer that needs to get applied, or even the yield of the, the system. And it's it's interesting because we don't when we think about climate change, we're always thinking in carbon how much carbon is sequestered and how do we value that but what we're seeing is industry at least in the food and ag side is really thinking beyond what value we can get from carbon and these businesses are being driven on the full basket of benefits that many of these solutions can bring.
1: Mike Biddle, uh, what have you seen under the Trump administration in terms of the Department of Energy, support for energy research, that sort of thing? Uh, I know Congress actually in some cases gave more money to uh, <laughs> certain uh, energy develop, uh, um, advanced energy than was even requested under the Obama years.
4: Yeah, I, I guess uh, many of us in this space have been concerned about what the administration is going to do to support our efforts uh, because early stage investors like ourselves – have largely depended on uh, research labs out of universities, much of that research being sponsored by uh, U.S. government grants uh, to de-risk the technology to try out everything under the sun because I completely agree with Noah. We need every single tool in the toolbox and we need a bigger toolbox uh, to solve this, this, this uh, multifaceted problem. And so we were, we've been very concerned that that funding and that, that funnel for us to be able to get technologies out of laboratories so that we can turn them into con, uh, companies that can then solve these problems uh, was going to start drying up. But just this January, uh, many of us were at uh, ARPA summit. ARPA is the uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency. Dash E means for the environment. Um, they are modeled after DARPA, which has been a very successful uh, government funding Model for defense related technologies
1: and the Internet Uh, (laughs) and
4: the Internet and many things that we take for granted every single day. Um, And we felt uh, we there was a kind of a gloom and doom uh, January of this year at the RPE summit because we were certain that it was going their budget was going to be slashed. Turns out their budget was increased, as you suggested. Uh, DOE's budget has been increased uh, for clean energy. And we're already seeing the fruits uh, of those budget increases. Uh, several of our early stage companies have received multi-million dollar grants to help de-risk the technology. And without that, I, many of these companies would simply not survive. They wouldn't even they first they wouldn't get out of the laboratories. They wouldn't get to a state uh, to where they would be investable uh, by early, even early stage investors like ourselves. We then prep them for larger investors down the road and then usually at that point, they're ready to be adopted by large industrial organizations, whether be in the chemical industry, oil and gas industry, uh, the automobile industry.
3: I just think the amount of funding overall is just a tiny,
4: tiny drop in the bucket. It is, and it's nowhere near what's <laughs> I mean, needed. We can say that about the entire space. These billion-dollar funds uh, are. A good start, right? Uh, our fund is a good start, uh, and you have to start somewhere.
3: But DOE spends billions of dollars a year on clean energy research. The amount that they have spent ever on direct air capture that that we've been able to identify is five million. That's yeah. it. They doubled the carbon utilization budget to ten million in this this win. So as a percent increase, that's fantastic. But when we see recent reports coming from the National Academies that say we don't need millions. We need billions of dollars a year across this full portfolio and not just DOE, but USDA and other science funding mm-hmm. agencies. We're nowhere near where we need to be to get on track when it comes to that research and development portfolio.
4: Well, you I mean, I think I'm glad you raised I mean, we're here talking about uh, negative carbon and and carbon capture from air has to be part of it. It's a big part of that that discussion. Uh, Trees do it extremely well, but they just don't do it fast enough. We can't plant enough trees to make to make a dent. Uh, And unfortunately, at least the technologies today are so far from being economically viable that I think it's it's difficult to justify big investments in in, uh, in there. I'm probably making your point for you. Hence, we need to to do more to drive that that price down. But it's, it's an extremely difficult space uh, to, to try to figure out that carbon is so uh, dilute in, in the air we breathe. 400 parts per million is making a huge difference in the climate. That's why we're here today. Um, but it's so dilute, the technology and costs associated with pulling it out of the air is, is extremely difficult. Yeah, but it's not, it's not that challenging at the end of the day. So is
1: it
3: technically simple, but the, it's the cost of the problem or technology? The problem? So plants don't complain that the CO2 in the air is only 400 parts per Correct. minute. It's too cheap to meter for them, right? Right. And so I, I think they've had a few hundred million years of R&D. I'll give you that. <laughs> but what I think that we're seeing is that we haven't started this. Spending $5 million total on anything is like where we were with solar back in the 70s. Right. That there were a handful of solar panels on NASA missions, but what we've seen over the past couple of decades at this point is billions of dollars go into the research, and then more importantly, billions and tens of billions of dollars go into the commercialization of those solutions. We've seen the price of solar drop 100x. I, I think there's a reason to see that we can bring down the cost of direct air capture and other carbon capture technologies, maybe not 100x, but definitely an order of magnitude. And, and that's really something that could be a game changer in this field.
0: And and restoring soil health is really inexpensive and can be done globally and at scale. So if we consider the the size of the opportunity, 50 to 70% of our cultivated soils are depleted, which means we could put soil carbon back in through photosynthesis to 50 to 70% of our soils globally. So what does that entail? That entails keeping, you know, that's composting. That's just returning the, the organic matter from whence it came. That means leaving some sort of mulch, over your, your soil. Don't let it be exposed to the elements so it keeps um, the microbial life alive which means the trees will grow faster.
1: So that means no raking and blowing. which You would really a lot of shouldn't
0: wo- rake and blow. <laughs> no, no. You Let's should. get
1: this down to the backyard. I, I, you know, yeah, a lot of that is just vanity, right? Well, want it to but there, there are way.
0: consequences to that raking and blowing because when you do that you're leaving. The, the soil is like the earth's skin and that's what makes our planet unique is we have a living soil ecosystem. It is a Alive and, and and climate scientists can see it almost like it, they can almost see it breathing. Um, they can measure it when they they see the the northern forests um, draw down the atmospheric carbon in the spring. So when you take away that cover, what you're doing is you're allowing the water to go back up into the atmosphere. And what happens is the reason our state burns so badly is it is as dry as a piece of toast because the soils lack carbon water follows carbon. If you increase soil carbon by 1%, this is a um, natural resource conservation statistic. So 1% in the top six inches of topsoil, your holding capacity on an acre of land is 27,000 gallons of water. So if you are exposing your soil constantly to the sun and the wind and the and, and the heat and it's drying it out. All that moisture is dissipating, and so when fire comes through, you you don't have that 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 sponginess. We we have a dry sponge where we should have like a, a moist sponge. So um, I just want to. Broaden the conversation just a little bit because soil is one of these sort of we we all talk a lot about water and the atmosphere and and so forth. And 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 soil is is something that we really take for granted. But for for food security, water security, for our medicines, for um, for so much, we absolutely rely on it for decomposition Uh, And yet we are abusing it and we could work with it and really cost effectively. And so that would help alleviate poverty. We have all these millennial goals that the, um, you know, that the UN has put forward. We're never going to meet them unless we put some of that back into vegetation and soil.
3: Yeah. And I'll agree that the potential of soil is enormous. All of these co-benefits that you talk about are, are real in many of these cases. The challenge is, how do we get this to scale quickly? And when researchers look at the numbers associated with soils and forests, Mike does have a a point that you can't increase all of the carbon in the soil that has been lost over centuries of agricultural production in the time frames that we're we're looking at here. So this actually becomes something that's very challenging to do at scale. We should absolutely get started, and it's a no-regrets strategy, but I also don't want to make it seem as if it's very cheap and very easy, because there are enormous hurdles when it comes to transforming our agricultural sector to actually unlock all of those benefits.
0: Sure. No, it's not. nothing's going to be easy. Um, but in terms of cost and you know, knowing that it's a proven and safe technology, with co-benefits instead of with you know, some unknown consequences that could be detrimental, And since we know that even if we didn't have a climate problem, we would still need to feed this growing population and we would still need fresh, clean water and, you know, we would still need all these other things so we can incentivize these other sectors that are beyond climate, the water sector, you know, the food security sector, um, you know, for peace and security. I mean, the reason people are fleeing their homelands, it's violence. But what precipitates that violence? It's when, you know, uh, Tom Friedman had a big column about this. He looked at Syria. They had a multiple, they had years of drought and they had failed harvests. So then you have war, and then you have migration.
3: I I just think it's not a unilateral solution. I think the first rule of improv, yes and, makes a lot of sense when it comes to these solutions. And I think a misconception with a lot of the technology strategies is that they actually are fairly proven. We have been capturing carbon, sequestering it underground for decades. We know how that works. And so I I think that we actually have a basket of solutions that if we deploy together can be complementary and reinforcing and get us where we need to faster.
0: Absolutely, but my my point is that um, at the Governor's Climate Summit, they had a hashtag, which was nature, the forgotten solution, that sort of working with natural systems is not part of the conversation often enough, and nature is far more powerful than we will ever be. And so if we harness these systems you know to our benefit instead of trying to work against them then you know nature wants to be in balance right but we just need to create the conditions for that to happen and we can
4: sure mike biddle yeah i i think we're i think we're in aggressive agreement up here that we need every tool in the toolbox there's no single category that's going to solve the problem i think that's really important and we have i think a lot of environmentalists and ngos are 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 i think Rightly concerned that when a solution gets promoted to the public as being the, the be all in solution They say, okay, we're done and uh, no, we're just scratching the surface um, One metric on I want to come back to the air carbon to kind of maybe frame uh, How much uh, work we need to do in this area to make a dent? Uh, so one of the companies that uh, Noah works with is Climeworks uh, over in Switzerland uh, on air capture And they're one of the leaders Uh, in the world on air capture, and they've actually have a few systems deployed, uh, mostly putting CO2 in greenhouse gases. And they've got a few other use cases now as well. Um, If you go to their website, uh, they make a claim that they want to, by 2025, I think it is, deploy enough systems to capture 1% of the global emissions, CO2 emissions. 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but it's it's a very big number. They would need 750,000 sea land containers full of their equipment to do that work that sounds like an impossible dream but that's the number of containers that go through i think it's hong kong port in just two weeks so okay first it sounded undoable now it sounds doable again and the space required for them to capture that uh, the amount of CO2 their equipment could capture. If you wanted to do the same with agriculture or trees, you'd need 100 or 1,000, I think, times the space, roughly. So we simply don't have the space. We we need to do everything we can to make um, the Earth do a better job of capturing the carbon. It's doing it every day, day in day out, but we can we can improve on that. But we just don't. We, there's not enough surface area on the planet, and we need that to turn it into systems that will will simply take CO2 out of the the atmosphere. So we do need these engineered solutions in addition to doing a better job, uh, helping Mother Nature do a better job and stop hurting Mother Nature from doing the job.
1: We've been talking about kind of abstractions, you know, sucking carbon out of the air. I want to bring this to kind of a more personal, human, emotional level. You know, Diana Donlan, uh, for... uh, about 10 days, more than 7 million Californians were breathing smoke from a climate amplified fire. I, I've been gazing at climate impacts for a long time. I never thought that I would have to ask my teenage daughter, honey, do you have your mask before you walk out the front door because of the smoke of a fire hundreds of miles away? So tell us how that fire affected you, you know, as someone who thinks about climate a lot. How did that affect you? It
0: was terrifying. I mean, it was terrifying for all of us, wasn't it? Um, And one of the ironies is that I know two people that lost their homes up in Butte County, and one of them, uh, a guy named Chris Kirsten, works with the Savory Institute, um, and he is... Working to promote solutions all over the world, he lost his dog. He lost his house. He, um, fortunately, his wife and children were okay. But um, you know, it's really traumatic. So, um, so I was thinking a lot about them. But you know, when you you realize how how dry everything is and how um, this soil sponge has just been wrung out, it's not surprising. Um, so we really do need to work with these systems because when fire comes, we are, you know, we're pretty. We're pretty powerless, and it's it's we, that was demonstrated.
1: No, you're a young guy embarking on a career in this. I mean, there's I was sitting on this stage a few days ago with someone from Cal Fire saying, There's more of this coming, there's gonna be a lot more of this in your lifetime. How does that, you know, sit with you a couple of weeks afterwards? You know, that the prospect of more of these fires.
3: Well, I can resonate with it feeling powerless to to make change. But I think one of the the bright spots when you think about sequestering carbon through all of these natural systems is all of a sudden we can turn what is one of these imminent challenges into opportunities for solutions. So if we figure out how we can manage our forests better, we can reduce our fire risk and sequester carbon. Sometimes that, so that carbon can be taken out of forests and put into buildings where it gets locked away for, for centuries, displacing the, the cement or other emissions-intensive materials. And so we get all of these cascading impacts. So we're not just helping to mitigate fires in the future, but also turning it into economic opportunity in these places that have just been, been devastated by some of these natural disasters.
1: Noah, do you ever have resentment toward the boomers who kind of trash the place?
3: Oh, yeah, it's definitely their fault. (laughs) 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 No, but I think we can all be part of this solution. And I think that's the the great part of this whole conversation is it doesn't matter where you are. There's a solution that you can participate in. If you can't ride your bike, you can figure out how to buy food that is sequestering carbon. And you don't necessarily have to commit your career to this, but there are so many opportunities and there will be. In the future that I think this is just an exciting place to be, even though we're in such a the hand that we've been dealt is really tough.
0: And I've been this has been my whole career has been working on environmental issues and initially I I worked for the Goldman Environmental Prize and I studied all these different issues and I thought, OK, we have to work on mangroves or we have to, you know, work on uh, rainforests or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden sort of midway through, I was like, oh, wait, climate, this is the biggest one. And that was a little daunting but um, and quite depressing. Um, but when I learned about really about the soil carbon opportunity, that gave me a tremendous amount of hope because I thought, how do I not know this? First of all, I've been in this business 20 years, and nobody has ever mentioned soil before. And I was part of all these food system groups, and nobody had ever talked about soil. And I thought, if I don't know this, there are a lot of people that don't know about this. And then I would recommend a book to you um, called... Dirt, the erosion of civilization, which really talks about how um, erosion and deforestation and so forth, how it's happened through millennia. I mean, there there are conversations between or. or Concurrence between Plato and Aristotle saying, you know, erosion is a, a threat to the Greek civilization. And and then Da Vinci talked about the soil ecosystem. Darwin, his last book was on earthworms. He spent 40 years studying earthworms. So there have been these, you know, it it didn't happen. I mean, when you start feeling guilty. Um, humans have been degrading the planet for millennia, but now we know better and we know the consequences. We kind of, um, hit the end of the road and we know how to fix it. So, um, which they didn't know how to do back then. So I don't think we can absolve ourselves. We just have to put all the tools and, you know, get to work.
4: One analogy quickly that I have in in some talks with sometimes, because it always comes up that, you know, government needs to fix this big, big, uh, companies need to fix it, the oil and gas industry needs to fix it. And the answer to all that is yes. Uh, but I did I did a few uh, calculations that I like to share with people. I'll just do this really quickly. So uh, I calculated that Unilever, which is considered to be one of the most uh, forward thinking companies on the planet, trying to lower its carbon footprint. The, the CEOs came in and said, we're going to double our production, but we're going to have our carbon footprint. And uh, at the same time, they reduced their carbon footprint by a million tons over, I think it was a four or five year period. I divided that by the number of employees per year, and it worked out to be one ton per year per employee. That's not bad for for changes that they made in their company while they were still growing the company over that time period. I did it for our family. Solar, riding bikes, going vegan, for the most, most part. Did that calculation. We were five tons per year. So... Small changes. I would say our life is better per person. Five times per person. Five. Better than five x what Unilever did with billions of dollars of investment. We just changed our lifestyle. I'm not saying that you need to do that. We made three small changes. That was it. And that was that was a bigger impact than multi-billion-dollar companies who roll out huge programs have made. So individuals can have a bigger impact. Right. My message. Is what each of us chooses to do every single day of our life can have a bigger impact than pointing at big government or big companies to, to solve the problem for us. We can make the difference.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking about carbon capture and storage with Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest are Noah Deitsch, head of Carbon 180, Diana Donlin, an expert on restoring soils, and Mike Biddle, who runs an investment firm backed by some oil companies. Let's go to audience questions. <coughs> Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hi, I'm Felix Kramer from Healthy Climate Alliance. I'd like to ask a question about the scale of all this. There seem to be two conversations going on about carbon removal. And there's the ones that uh, talk about in the Paris Agreement, every scenario involves some carbon removal. Uh, And there's another conversation that really took off when Drawdown came out, a book with the title, How to Reverse Global Warming, not slow it, not get to 1.5, but to remove enormous amounts of carbon in the, in the trillion-ton range. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the solutions you see in the context not of the uh, let's try to avoid the worst consequences of climate change, but let's fix the problem. Uh, are there solutions that could do 10 or 20 billion tons a year by 2050? And what should we be doing to encourage those?
1: Amp up the ambition, Noah Dice.
4: Yeah, so I think
3: what you're really looking for is what portfolio of solutions can get you there. And I think within that portfolio, a number of big ones have been identified. The simplest ones are are trees and our soils. These are technologies that are ready to go and can get to that billion ton, if not larger scale per year. When we're talking about going beyond that, we likely need to have technology options. And these are things like direct air capture machines, filter CO2 directly from the air, or various ways to essentially grind up rocks that react with CO2. The scale potential is not really the question in my mind. It's the what's the economic potential and our willingness to pay for all of these solutions. We can do this technically. It's just a matter of can we innovate and implement the the markets and incentives to actually do this at the billion-ton scale, let alone the 10-billion-ton scale. Let's
1: go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Tom McCown. I'm from Albany, California. Carbon tax was mentioned a couple of times briefly. The question I have is, if there is a carbon tax or fee and dividend, how does that play into this? Because suddenly now, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, the carbon has more value than it would have and and is that going to incentivize or or give it a financial incentive or is it really neutral to what you're trying to achieve in these different areas?
4: No, it's it's huge. It's night and day. It it would make a it would make an immediate difference. That nothing moves faster than free enterprise. You send a pricing signal to the market, entrepreneurs will come out of the woodwork to But most of those investors don't
1: want to make policy dependent Investments, right? Because they don't think government. They don't like betting on government, so they don't
4: make policy bets, right? I agree. I I guess you know, drum beat the drum. I I mean, a lot of people have said we need a carbon tax. So I mean, the the audience is big on that. To me, it's about pricing externalities. I had the same problem in the in recycling plastics. It is a cost. We want the truth at the end of the day. The truth is, carbon is has a cost on every single one of us on every dimension of our life, and if we don't cost it. We're not just we're being foolish. We're being short-sighted. I mean, I think everybody in this audience knows that. The trouble is, there's a lot of part of the population that that coin hasn't dropped yet.
3: Yeah, but design matters. To the question, though, we can design How a carbon tax in a way that will incentivize these solutions specifically, and we can design one that's. It, less favorable
4: to it. It's just a question of, of input. I think there's been some great examples, you know, give the money back to the, the people and, and let them, you know, and if, if you're a low carbon, you're not going to be ta- You're not going to feel that tax. If you live a low carbon life, let's go to our next question. Welcome.
0: Hi, my name is Erica Dodds. I'm with the healthy climate Alliance. I've really appreciated the discussion about the potential of natural systems to draw down carbon. And I was wondering if any of you could speak to the potential of photosynthesis and carbon drawdown in our oceans.
1: Oceans, we've overlooked that's where a lot of it goes. Noah Deitch?
3: Sure. So I think that there are opportunities, especially around coastal ecosystems, that make a ton of sense. Again, they have lots of benefits. And as we think about how do we adapt to changes in climate already underway mangroves and other coastal ecosystems can be a great buffer for increasing storms i think where the science is weakest however is how do we do something in the deep ocean how do we do that at a large scale in a way that we actually understand what the carbon balances are and that uh, conform with our protocols about how we deal with open ocean uh, interference so i I think right now it's an important area for science, but it's not something that's really ready when we think about very large scale to get started on.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
0: Hi, I'm Megan Keiko, San Francisco. Um, so uh, there's a lot of solutions talked about um, in your guys' um, panel discussion about um, to what degree we can like work with nature, um, private versus public sector, to what degree we should be coordinating as a community, a global community, and Things like that, um, I was just wondering to what degree do you think we can measure each of these solutions in relation to each other? because on the one hand, like it's really great that each of us like through lifestyle changes can like I don't know save five tons of carbon, things like that, and not to say any of these solutions are exclusionary, but to what degree do you think we should be trying to like measure each of these solutions in relation to one another in terms of prioritizing? Um which is most effective? What combinations of solutions are effective, and to what degree is that even like a worthy <laughs> amount of time we should really like spend on it?
4: Mike Biddle sounds like you went through this process. Oh, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it, and you, you nailed it. I, I mean, we have to get the answer right. We, we, we have to know what the true cost is on many dimensions. There's tools like life cycle, life cycle analysis, life cycle assessment that are being deployed. Someone mentioned uh, Project Drawdown, uh, which was started by Paul Hawken, uh, a Bay Area native. Um, I, I would direct you to that, that book if you're not familiar with it, uh, because it tries to do that. It tries to put things in perspective. And I would say a lot of the solutions in that space are surprising. And they involve uh, people changing behaviors that can have a big impact again to some of my earlier comments
0: so one of the um potential uh, levers in project drawdown is empowering women and girls exactly. and if we do that globally that actually has a huge climate benefit yep. and most of the um subsistence farmers in this world are now women yep. so you know if that is what you want to do that will have a climate impact um so it's, you kind of have to look at it as an equation you know we do this plus this plus this plus this and then
2: we get there. you've been listening to a climate one conversation about the promise of carbon removal greg dalton's guests today were noah deitch executive director of carbon 180 diana Donnellan, director of soil centric and mike biddle managing director of evoc innovations to hear all our climate one conversations subscribe to our podcast at our website ClimateOne.org, where you'll also find photos video clips and more
1: Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.